Well, hello everybody and welcome back to the My Love of Golf podcast for 2021. Another year, another podcast and looking forward to making as many as we possibly can. Thank you for all of your support in 2020 uh, and thank you to all of the guests who took their time to come on. It really did help make this podcast uh, grow, I thought, to the next level and uh, gave me the inspiration to want to keep going. And, you know, I hope in some way, shape and form that it shared the stories and it got into your ears and you enjoyed listening to some of those stories. Yes, well, we are back. Rocket is back and we'll hear from Rocket uh, very, very soon. He's on holidays at the moment, but we might hear from Rocket on the road. Uh, we'll get his review of 2020 and some of the player awards that he's famous for. And uh, we're, we're on our way. So the first episode for this year was actually something that I recorded at the end of last year with a very good friend of the podcast, Steve. You might know Steve as the golfing greenkeeper. Now, it was an interview that Steve did with me. Uh, I've been a guest on the golfing greenkeeper podcast a number of times and, and enjoy very much uh, the opportunity to be interviewed and not to be the interviewer. And we talked at length around a couple of topics. And one in particular was what I term wedgeology. Now, that is the, uh, the system that surrounds wedges in your golf bag. And, you know, it became clear to, to Steve and I when we were talking about, you know, turf and grass and golf courses and, and different types of turf, how different clubs work in different environments, that the makeup of a person's golf bag and golf kit is, is very important to consider the wedges. So I termed this phrase wedgeology and he said, oh, we should talk about that on the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast because it has some relationship to, to grass and different places and different parts of Australia and, and he wanted to share that. So I've just basically, if you've listened to that episode, well, you, know, you probably don't have to listen to the rest of this one, but if you do, if you want to, that's fair. That's absolutely, um, I would welcome that. But I just thought that it was it was a good bit of information to kick this year off just nice and easily, share some information about uh, wedgeology, uh, how you might be considering upping your wedge game this year uh, and if that's improving your golf kit and in increasing the amount of wedges or putting some new wedges in your bag, well, you might find this episode very, very handy. If you have any questions regarding golf equipment, please always feel free to reach out to me. I see, touch and feel pretty much every piece of golf equipment in the industry on a daily basis. I usually get a fair degree of insight into into what's happening and and what's coming and when it's coming. So we might share some more of that as we have done in the past. And we might try and bring even more product information. So uh, enjoy this part of the episode. But there's a second part of the episode also with Steve, the golfing greenkeeper. And please jump over and, and listen to Steve's uh, podcast because he does a great job with golf course uh, architecture, a lot of the um, happenings of golf courses uh, in and around Australia. So any developments, any courses that are changing or upgrading, some of the architects that are involved and the design companies, he's usually uh, two or three steps ahead of the curve on that front, bringing us information. But he's also very passionate about the history of golf course architecture. He's done some great pieces on that one recently with Steve about uh, Dan Souter. Uh, an early Scottish architect who came across and was basically responsible for a lot of the courses around Sydney and also some in Melbourne. Listen to that, it was enthralling. But we also talked about another area of golf uh, course development and this one is a different form of development around the Moor Park complex in Sydney. It's quite topical and a number of people have spoken about it so you know, we're not the first obviously but we did this you know, mid-December where the Sydney City Council was making has been making um, waves around I guess taking back that part of the Centennial Park sporting complex, you know, which Moore Park sits on, and taking back the golf course part of that because, uh, and taking it back for the people and turning it into parkland, which is, is accessible to everyone. Now, Steve had some, wanted to get my thoughts on that, and I was happy to give it. You know, I'm not, I'm a Melbourneite, as you know, but, you know, I have spent a lot of time, I'm a New South Welshman by birth, and I spent a lot of time in Sydney and lived not far from there, and I've seen the development of that area. I've seen the high rises uh, go up in and around there and I know, you know, that that area has changed. But what I do know is golf has changed as well. And on the back of last year, you know, we've seen a number of people come to the game of golf. It's no secret that the amount of golfers that are playing golf and, and coming into golf, new golfers and, and old golfers that have stopped golf, the numbers, are, I see them on a daily basis, are phenomenal. And if... There was a winner in 2020 out of this COVID-19 period. It definitely was golf. And, and golfers, us golfers, the people like yourself sitting here listening to this, have been largely responsible for getting our friends and family and mates and 
girlfriends and wives and husbands to come and join us on the golf course because yeah, you know, for many years I think golf was you know has been a little bit stigmatized in in the non-golfing community. You know, it's a fuddy-duddy game or it's a bit hard or it's a bit inaccessible. But all of a sudden it became very accessible, you know, because it was safe to do. It was you know, we were able to get out there on the course and do it in a socially distanced way and all of the, that other nomenclature that goes around this very important you know, COVID safety period. And people, when they lost access to some of their other, you know, weekend or weekly sport sporting pursuits, started to gravitate towards the golfing, the golfing community, and and the golfers within their their family sets and friendship friendship excuse me friendship circles, and decided. Let's go and play some golf. Now, I know this because I see it every day. As I said before, you know, I've been handing over new sets of golf clubs uh, to a wide and varied array of people, people that I never thought would ever seen. People, when they tell me about why they come into golf, they'd never thought they'd ever play golf. But, you know, they, they had a little bit of a go of it with their friends. They had a go of it down at the driving range and they're hooked. And, you know, they've felt what it feels like to hit a golf ball. So back to Moore Park. Never, ever, ever before has a place like Moore Park been so important to the community. You know, golf is a game which has got history. It's got, uh, you know, it's a game which needs the land and, and the game's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years and, and to think that it can just be, you know, taken away for, you know, because because of, you know, development and, and you know, I'm not going to say that it's overdevelopment. I might actually say that in, in, the, in the interview. But because, you know, there are more and more people around there you know, it's it's quite sad. It saddened me to, to think about that, you know, and, and you, you can hear the way I felt about it in the interview. So please listen to both sections of the interview with Steve. I just thought it was valuable enough information to, you know, gently kick off this year. I've already got uh, a number of interviews locked away and a lot up up and coming. But, you know, when I listen to this back, and I don't often listen to um, my own, myself talk a lot because I, I talk a lot anyway, but I don't often listen to, but I listened to back to that and I thought, oh, no. It's, it's, it's absolutely worth sharing. So please let me know. I'd love to hear more from you this year. Uh, the engagement that I get from the listeners and the messages and the, and the contact and the games of golf and you know, the invitations to come and play at your golf course, I really, really do appreciate it. And it's one of the things that just drives me to keep wanting to do this and you know, be part of the golfing um, community and the golf industry and you know, you know, play, play my part. And I'm pretty passionate about that. And I know some of the things that we've got uh, planned for this year are bigger and, and better than, than last year. It'll take a while to get those up and running, but uh, with all of the guys that I'm involved in this podcastery uh, world with, you know, including Blakey from the Golf Rules Questions podcast, including Jamie Glazier, the, the um, Mental Mastery Golf podcast, you know, we've never been more committed to, to wanting to get this type of information and content out there on a very regular basis. If if we can do it weekly, we'll do it weekly. If it's not weekly, we'll be fortnightly. But, you know, rest assured that we will be spending a lot of our time when we're not doing our normal day-to-day nine-to-five jobs, and we all have those. We, we think, eat, sleep and breathe the world of golf and the world of golf uh, podcasting. So when you do tune in, it does mean the world to us. Uh, when you like, share and subscribe, you know, you hear every podcast. You obviously, as a podcast listener, you probably listen to about 20 or so if the stats are right. Maybe not all golf podcasts, but you hear everyone say, like, share and subscribe. And it becomes a bit of a hackneyed phrase, but it's actually really important because, you know, it helps people hear what we're talking about. And it's sort of like, to me, people coming into golf and golf growing. You know, if you share the passion, if you share what you like, then other people get to hear it and that's how things grow. So for anyone that's um, liked, shared and subscribed in 2020, which, you know, the October 2020 saw us be two years in this My Love of Golf podcast, you know, we're well into uh, over 100 episodes now and many, many, many thousands of downloads. If you have shared, liked and subscribed and all that sort of stuff, I really do thank you from the bottom of my heart from 2020 and 2019 before that and looking forward to everything that we can do together in 2021. Stay tuned. Big year ahead. Uh, golfing goals are plenty from everyone, including myself. I probably maybe had my first game of 2021 golf today. Probably uh, didn't get off to the greatest of starts, but you know what? I enjoyed being out there. I enjoyed the company. I enjoyed the good shots. I quickly forgot about the bad shots. I haven't put any pressure on myself coming into this year because coming out of um, the post-Melbourne lockdown, I haven't played a lot of golf, been fairly busy, but that's about to change. Going to get back into some regular golf, I'm going to use a bit more equipment, try a few more bits and pieces, try and share that with you. 
But uh, today's golf, it was very enjoyable. Not my greatest score, but I look forward to sharing a little bit more of that golf stuff with you as well. So, as I said before, thanks very much. Enjoy this episode. And I do look forward to sharing more with you in 2021 on the My Love of Golf podcast. Thanks for listening. All right, everyone. I just thought we would have to get back friend of the podcast. I could say friend of the podcast now in uh, Ross Flanagan, known famously for the My Love of Golf podcast. And uh, he's probably doing six or seven podcasts now since we last spoke. But Roscoe, welcome again to the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast. How are you going, mate? Steve, thank you as always for having me back. Yes, absolutely friend of the podcast. Uh, very good friend of the podcast. I'm proud to say so. Famous? No, not definitely not uh, on that front. But um, six or seven podcasts? No, I, I, I'm str- struggling to struggling to, with uh, the balls of three of them up in the air. And uh, for anyone that does want to take the t- chance to listen, the Golf Rules Questions podcast with myself and the Golf Rules Questions guru Blakey, and uh, then the Mental Mastery Golf podcast with Jamie Glazier and My Love of Golf podcast with me. That's busy enough, mate. How are you? I'm well, mate, and, and absolutely anyone looking to uh, to learn more about the game and, and things that can help you along the way or, or interest, go and, and listen to any and all of those podcasts because you will find them fascinating, mate. But um, yes, I'm well, thank you, and very busy. I think we find our, ourselves both busy at the moment. I've got you on hands-free, of course, but you're on the road to uh, your other job, which which is the Drum and Golf Store in, in Melbourne. Uh, that is the one that pays the bills, yes, uh, correctly. <laughs> The other ones don't pay the bills, but uh, they pay my they pay my mental uh, mental health, so uh, that's good. Yep, no, very, on, the, on the road into the city, mate. Very very good, mate. Very good. Well, thanks again for joining and taking the time to uh, to participate in discussion. And um, one look, I'll probably just start by and uh, my last podcast, I had uh, I did a segment on Aussie golf history, and it was on a a guy by the name of Dan Suter, who you being from Melbourne would know that um, he designed the famous Kingston Heath golf course. And um, look, uh, one of the things I've talked about golf equipment with you being a a Drummond golf store owner. And I love to learn about this sort of stuff in the modern day, because there's so many things that are, are at your fingertips to pick from. And there's a lot of tech involved. And sometimes you try and find out just where to look before you can look for what you, what you want to look for and what's going to suit you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about wedges today. There's so many different things. And back in Dan Suter's day, for example, I think it was the Niblick, and I love some of these old names of, of the clubs. They didn't use numbers. They, they used names. Uh, the Niblick was, the, I think, the most lofted club in the bag. But I've seen images of those sorts of, of sticks, as it were, the hickories back then, and, and, the, and those types of club faces, and they were sharpish edges and geez they must have been hard to play golf with let alone you know trying to hit a ball under some sort of control but I think about trying to play a bunker shot or out of the rough with some of those clubs and man they'd get tangled up in things and dig down and talk about skill those guys had it in spades. Uh, You're 100% correct when you think uh, to the likes of you know our golfing forebears you know, the skills that they had were, were phenomenal considering. And, you know, I guess, and I don't know, obviously, but from what I've read and what I've learned, you know, the conditions that they played golf in back then uh, were far less curated than they are now. Uh, the conditions in bunkers, the conditions of rough and fairway, you know, like the, the modern day, uh, you know, greenkeeping equipment back then, Steve, as you probably know, were, were sheep on the golf yeah. courses in Scotland. And, and in some parts still are uh, up in Braw and that, that sort of part parts of the world where they've got sheep that roam and, and do a lot of the grazing. So, you know, the conditions were far less conducive to um, beautiful shot making that we find ourselves in these days. So, yeah, Indeed. So, different times. Indeed. And so, mate, look, your experience and knowledge in in seeing new equipment and things that come out, like I talk about, we'll talk about wedges because there's so many different uses for wedges in golf and there always has been in the, in the shorter lofted shots and, and different ways of using getting out of trouble and things like that. Is there some of this tech and some of the, the, the design that goes into a wedge? Cause I look at it and I hear this 
five or six different lofts for wedges and there's, you know, gap wedges and lob wedges and sandwiches and all these sort of yeah. pitching wedges and and but there's there's details. I'll take a sandwich and I'll talk about bounce on the sole of a sandwich on the on the underneath of a club to help the club go through the sand and come out of the sand, I I think is my take on it. What is some of the tech stuff that you know from the from the club manufacturers that that they put into these things, and do you know much about how they work and how it helps a golfer? Yeah, it's a good good topic, Steve, because you know, in talking to you know golfers of you know all different skill levels and all different courses that they play on, it is a very often asked question about wedges, and I like to sort of refer to it as wedgeology. Wedgeology, and, and I like that. Wedgeology, <laughs> and and there's there's a whole. There's probably three different key factors. You know, there is uh, the technology and the type of wedge and, and that there are differences there. Uh, as you mentioned, there are the, the loft configurations of the wedge system and it very much is a system when you start looking at all of those different loft configurations. So, you know, it's very, it's very rare or less frequent now that we have something that's the typical S, S wedge, yeah. you know, like yep. you can, you do still get them of course, but, you know, there are certainly more specialty wedges that's, that are available now. And and then there are the other sort of technical factors of what makes a wedge work for A, a particular player, or B, a particular player and a certain set of conditions. So uh, let's let's talk about that part. Sure. No, we'll go back to the start. Let's talk about, you know, the wedge, <laughs> the wedge system. Let's talk about the wedge system. Okay. You talked about lofts. You talked about lofts. So... Yep. Traditionally, a sand wedge was 54 degrees around that, that, that mark, 54 degrees. But then, then you had a pitching wedge at traditionally, say maybe 10 years ago, at about 47 degrees of loft. Right. So there's a bit of a gap in there, right? Yep. Yeah, what is that, 47 to 54? You do the math, there's seven degrees of, um, of loft. Yep. So players started to realise that this gap was creating, you know, challenges in shot making yeah because let's say for you, for you steve a pitching wedge went 110 meters and your 54 degree sandwich went 70 meters so it's a big difference so they started making more loft options available and, okay um, so that's what happened and now we find ourselves with with modern technology in the golf clubs pitching wedges because the ball's flying so high with the tech they put into it they're strengthening the loft pitching wedges are moving up to like 45 degrees and even even less in some categories so really yeah this whole wedge system and getting the loft gapping um appropriate for the player is very important so that's one area that that people sort of still learning to get their their knowledge around is is what are all these different wedges you know we've got you you can pick any brand bokey cleveland callaway mac daddy all that sort all that sort of thing. They all do a wedge in their wedge systems from 46 degrees in that specialty shape through to, through to 64 in many cases. So <laughs> I'd really, be worried about hitting a 64. I've got a 60 and that goes high enough. I'd be worried about hitting myself in the head with a 64. 100%. 100%. And <laughs> so, so it's really like understanding uh, getting the wedge system right is understanding where your game needs the support. Now, Support, as in for a, a typically a better player and a longer hitter, they're going to play more of their shots closer to the green, inside that 120 meter meter zone, where they want to have all of the options. You know, to reduce that, reduce that gap mitigation, mitigate those gaps, and really give themselves a, a shot, a club for every shot for most of the distances. So you would see a better player traditionally, and when you do the what's in the bags, if you like me, you like to look in what all the better players use in their bags. Yeah. You'll see they'll have maybe three three wedges, four wedges, including a pitching wedge. So they'll have more clubs down there. For someone yeah, who needs more, more help at the, with their long game and are going to play more shots in the longer part of the game, they might have they may have another fairway wood and maybe two two hybrids. So then, that, then with 14 clubs in the bag, they don't have room for that extra loft. Yeah, okay. Uh, so they'll have a pitching wedge and a sand wedge. And maybe they might have a lob wedge at some point. But, yeah, that's the sort of structure of the system. So it's working out where your pitching wedge is, what type of, you know, sort of shots you like to play and, and where you're going to get the benefit from having 
a different wedge system and then and then basically matching up the gaps. You know, like even gaps is usually a good place to start. So if your pitching wedge is 46 degrees, you know, which is the case in my bag, I will have a gap wedge at 50 degrees and then I have a sand wedge or a, a 54 degree wedge. And, you know, I still, I still refer to that as a sand wedge, but I, I very rarely actually play it out of the sand. And then I have my lob wedge, which is a 60 degree. Now I can play either a 58 or a 60. There's a little bit of difference in that two degrees of loft, but you know, sometimes it just sets up different to the eye. So there's, there's my system, a 50, a 54 and a 60. Some yeah, people, okay. some people like that 52 degrees of, of loft for a gap wedge, a 56 for that sand wedge. Yeah. The sand wedge becomes yet yeah, chipping club, very important yep. around the greens chipping. And then they'll, they'll have a 60. So that's sort of wedge systems. Yeah, right. Uh, okay. And then the, the next part is you talked about technology. Now, when you look at like a Vokey wedge or a Cleveland wedge or a Mac Daddy wedge or, you know, anyone from that sort of area, you'll see that they look a little bit more like a blade type club. And, and their basic premise of that wedge was developed in a while, ages ago, you know, um, I credit Roger Cleveland, the great Roger Cleveland, uh, for being the sort of gra- grandfather. He's, he's not a grand, you know, he's an old, older, he's a statesman of the industry. Call him the grandfather of wedges. You know, he, he designed what I think was one of the first modern day shapes in a wedge. You know, that rounded toe, you know, uh, blade style wedge that, you know, just became very conducive for beautiful shot making. And he basically, back in the late 80s, you know, he started to shape wedges, you know, putting wedges on the grinding machine and, and really work with tour players, you know, better players and giving them more options rather than just having one sand wedge with a big flange and bounce on it. He had players that now were saying, well, Roger, can you take off a little bit of this uh, metal at the back here because I can feel it when I hit. So he was really one of the guys that started this wedgeology. I've, wow. I've actually had the pleasure and privilege to spend 18 holes of golf with Roger uh, down at Kingston Heath a number of years ago. And oh, good, fo- good. On your name drop people and golf courses. How good are you oh, going? Yeah. Everyone <laughs> that listens to my podcast know that I am always guaranteed for a name drop or a handicap drop. Um, <laughs> but, no, but the point the point of me saying that is, you know, imagine having, you know, four hours on a golf course with Roger Cleveland, you know, that the the inspiration and the knowledge and the and the stuff that he was able to tell me just in, in having a round of golf was was Absolutely. Um, that's priceless, mate. That's, money, money can't buy. I was very lucky. But, um, that's incredible. He, was, he started that sort of, you know, wedge, really bespoke wedge sort of making back then and making it for tour players, as I said. So, you know, this whole bounce, you know, when we talk about bounce and you mentioned that, you know, big flange on the back of a wedge, you know, my first specialty wedge was a Ben Hogan wedge. Um, got it in, in 1987 and it just had, the big bounce on the back. And yep. that was basically all you could get. When they started making this modern shape, you had the big flange on the back. And, you know, if you've had an older set of clubs, a set of Wilsons or, you know, something from that 80s era, you'll, you'll remember a sandwich with a big bounce on the back. But you also, if you can see those sets of clubs now, you'll see them with wear marks on certain spots relative to the player that was using them. They usually be worn on a certain place. And yep. that's because, you know, people were, um, they had these big bounces that used to get worn. So what the manufacturers do now is, is give the player a whole range of bounce options. So you don't just have one choice of flange. You've got several choices of flange. And, and those flanges are therefore different in each of these lofts in the system. Nice. Your 50-degree your, your gap wedge, Steve, is usually more for fuller shot club, fuller shots, full swing clubs, because it's that 100-meter shot. So yep. they've, they've usually got a fairly limited range of bounces. So fairly standard eight to 10 to 12 degree bounce. And it's a bounce that's designed to work through the turf as you make a divot and help push the club back through the turf. Yeah, right. So not, not, not as many options. But when you get into this sand wedge category, you know, 54 to 56 degree of loft, you know, either of those two lofts, you start to see a lot more bounce options coming into play. And, and back when I started on this little uh, ramp, you know, I said, type of course, type of player. And that's yep. usually what you're look, looking for to match the suitability for when you're fitting a wedge. And wedges definitely are a club in your bag that you, know, you can be fit for and should be fit for when you can. 
Um, but this bounce is certainly something that you're looking for and asking the questions about of the player, what type of wedge shots do you play? You know, uh, uh, show me show me your wedge shot. You know, show me your typical 60 metre, 70 metre wedge shot. And you just get a, an idea and a sense of how they hit how they uh, hit the ball, how they interact with the turf. You know, are they a player that likes to take a big divot? Are they a player that likes to take a shallow divot? That has an impact on, on what type of bounce might suit that player. Obviously, the bigger divot, the more turf interaction, the more that blade is going to work into the turf and work through the turf. So sometimes you need a little bit more support because you don't want that leading edge to get caught up in the, in the grass. You know, we don't always hit the ball first. We always sometimes, especially with wedges, get a bit of grass first. Yep. And we don't want that, that wedge to get caught and end up in a flub. So sometimes in that type of environment, you know, someone might need a, a, a bigger bounce, more bounce. But then if someone, you know, just takes a nice pick, pick off the ground, um, you know, they might need an option with less bounce, a little bit of a sharper leading edge. And you can get different grinds. You know, grinds is the other thing. You know, you can get a, you can get a grind with a, 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 and you see it. If you look at the bottom of a Vokey M grind, for example, you'll see it looks sharper towards the leading edge and then a bit of a knob, a bit of a flange still at the back. So, you know, they've ground, hand ground off that front bit to allow that person who likes to get that leading edge under the turf. Now, if we talk about turf interaction, which we sort of just mentioned a bit before, is if you're playing on a hard surface, hard surface, Steve, you've played on a few. Imagine yep, if you've I got certainly wedge, have. <laughs> imagine if you've got a, one of these traditional wedges back with a big bounce. What happens? Oh, mate, it's it's ugly. You get the flyers and the driver height <laughs> blades coming off. It's, uh, it's wicked. Exactly, because the, the wedge isn't allowed to interact with the turf in a way that gets that leading edge under the ball. So, you know, if you're trying to put a bit of loft on it and a bit of spin and open it up, you know, it's just that knob on the back really hits the, um, hits the ground and, you know, essentially the leading edge. And it's obviously hard to demonstrate in an audio, but the leading edge is sitting proud of the proud of the turf and it's blading into the ball. And if, you know, if you're a less than, you know, absolutely expert skilled wedge player, sometimes that's difficult to, to, to manipulate. So, you know, this grind uh, is designed to help players pick grinds and bounce systems. Once again, a system, very much a system, uh, to suit their, their type of play and type of shot and the type of conditions. Now, when we talk about a system in wedge bounces, and so we've not lost system, we're talking about bounce system, and I very much call it a system because sometimes, you know, not everyone has the benefit and the luxury like a tour player is to have a bag full of wedges and to have every bounce and every grind and every loft. And they can just pick and choose from course to course, from distance to distance. We'll carry three. A better player might carry three. So they're going to play in softer sand. If they travel around a bit, they're going to play in firm sand. They're going to play full shots. They're going to play half shots. So they might want a system with their bounces to have one bounce that allows them a little bit more relief and forgiveness. So a bigger bounce. And then they might have one that has less bounce. Typically, that would be an example. You know, I'm just driving past the back end of, some of the sandbell courses now, and you mentioned the famous Mr. Suter and you know, his influence on on Melbourne, the Melbourne golf landscape. For the sandbell golfers, will understand this. You know, what's the what's the consistency of the sandbell typical sandbell bunker, Steve? What how would you describe that? Oh, it's a, it's it's a quite a a loose, dry sort of sand. I would say if you go to Royal Melbourne, you've got a beautiful flat bottom bunker. You've got a hard wall. And the, and the ball's all settled to the, towards this sort of flattish bottom bunker. Yeah. And, and under, underneath that, that first layer of, of, you know, soft sand, it can be quite firm underneath. So the, the top ah. is, it, it's like a, you'd almost say crusty. And, yeah, okay. and if, you go, if, you, if you go to um, Royal Melbourne or a lot of these sandbelt courses that have these, you know, beautiful, consistent bunkers, you know, flat at, flat at the bottom, so the ball comes to the bottom, it's firm underneath, but soft on top. And if you, yeah, whack, yeah, gotcha. if, if you whack a big bounce, you know, you're trying to loft it up and get it over some of these high bunker walls and, uh, you know, get it to stop on some of the firmer greens. Uh, if you've got a big bounce, if you try and lay that open, you're just going to blade it like we described before. So a lot of the, the sand belt players will have a lower bounce on their lob wedge, allowing the club to slide under and cut through that crust and just pop up nice and soft and, and land now some bunkers 
are very soft. You know, that big white beachy type sand. Yeah, the, I mean, uh, you know, we think about any new bunkers that have been constructed. It's really fluffy. It's almost like cake mix. It's just it, it swallows and consumes your your your, your club that you're going to hit with, and and you can feel when it really takes. Oh, the club doesn't want to come back out so easily. Correct. So if you're playing in that type of condition, you know, let's call it that more beachy type consistency sand. Um, you know, there's a lot of give under that, and there's a lot of room to hit that inch under the ball. Well, yep. sometimes for your lob wedge, you might need a bigger, more bounce, or at least one club in your arsenal with more bounce and one club with less bounce, and. And really, this fitting wedges around having that type of discussion without going on too much more about it, but having that type of discussion and helping people understand the shots and the conditions and where where they play those shots and conditions. And the last part, I guess, and I hope that sort of in a sort of ranty way answers the questions for a lot of people. And if anyone does have any more questions, please follow them through to you or follow them through to me and, and I'll do my best to, to, to help answer and you want to ring me or whatever no, no problems but the last yeah. part that I mentioned about wedge fitting um you know i think most of the listeners these days would be fairly au fait with the value of getting clubs fit and, and having length and having lie angle um custom fit now some people depending on their action are you know a degree upright two degrees upright or a degree flat you know whatever maybe standard but not always does that mean that your wedges are going to be the same lie angle or maybe all of your wedges are the same lie angle. So we talked about the, the gap wedge being a, predominantly a full shot club. Now, some people might use it a little bit more for chipping and little chip and runs, but you're going to play that 100-meter shot for a, you know average golfer with a gap wedge of 50 degrees. Yeah. Now, being, being that it's a, usually a full shot type club, you know, the, the swing action might be a little bit more relevant to the, 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 the golf club set. So if someone is a degree upright in their fit, you know, they're more likely to be, you know, that sort of lie angle for, for the full shot club, the 50 degree gap wedge. But once you get in, then in a fittings environment, get a, a player to start showing you their chipping action and their spunker action and, and what happens there with the, the 56 and the 60. Well, what happens is sometimes, you know, like when you're playing a bunker shot, what do you do? You squirm around, you squat down, you know, your hands are a bit lower. You're trying to keep that, that uh, hosel shallow through through the sand, therefore a different lie angle. So, you know, I'd always encourage people to have a look at the lie angles of their um, of their sand wedges uh, and their and their bunker clubs and their chipping clubs because sometimes that action is a little different. Now, if you play full shots with all these clubs, you know you've got a diff- you've got a question then to answer. You know, because you can't have perfection. You can't have two degrees upright for one club and. Uh, one shot and then change it to two degrees flat for a, a low-handed bunker shot. So you've really got to make some decisions around your set makeup and where you play these shots and, and at least, you know, be aware of it. So I quite often fit people that, you know, might have a one degree flat in their lob wedge, standard lie angle in their sand wedge, and then one degree up wedge, upright in their, um, in their uh, uh, gap wedge. So, you know, this is all, all part of, you know, this bespoke nature of golf club fitting that we, you know, we've educated everyone to, to, to get access to now. And, um, yeah, but you remember the first part, you know, that old club, you know, that old sandwich. And, you know, if someone's got one and you want to go to your old sandwich from 1980s that you might have lying around, you might see it worn on the heel. And that's because someone's, you know, digging the heel into the sand. Now, back in those days, you know, bending, bending lie angles was certainly not as common, not, not as well known in a, in a golf consumer sense. So imagine if that line angle was was correct, it might have allowed that player to play better better shots. Make so, a big so, difference to their game, totally. I hope that's made sense to you, Steve. In a in a sort of, I tried to break Mate, it look, down into different parts. To to be honest, I was intently listening on because that, like I said, I said to you um, before and, and off air in terms of of this sort of topic that this would be a lesson for me because. I don't know a lot about wedges and I'm intrigued by it because I'm, I'm going to be looking at new gear before too long for my clubs. And I've just been one of those people that buy a set, the S is on the club. That's the one that I use for the short shots. Now I am a Cleveland fan and I'm glad you brought up, was it, was it Roger? Cleveland? Yeah, well, yeah Roger um, Cleveland. So I mean, Roger, I, Roger Cleveland, just to, just to round off on that and I should, I'd be remiss of me and I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't mention it. So Roger Cleveland started Cleveland Golf, which many, many years ago he sold. Uh, he right. sold to he sold to a Japanese company 
Sumitomo Rubber Industries, which is the parent company for Shrixen. So Shrixen is oh. Zexio, Shrixen Irons, and Cleveland Wedges and Putters. So Roger sold that business many years ago, but for the last 20-odd years, he's been Callaway's chief wedge and uh, forged iron designer. You know, so wow. if, you have, if you have a set of Callaways in your bag and uh, it's got the little R stamp, but they're a forged set of Callaway irons and they've got R stamped on the, on the hosel, uh, that's usually signifies that Roger Cleveland's you know been involved in the design of that process. So, wow. yeah, Roger. So the Mac Daddy wedges from Callaway. Roger's designed all of those. Um, the the Phil Mickelson, the PM grind. He told me a very interesting story, which I'm happy to share. Sorry to interrupt, but um, Phil Mickelson was using, Phil Mickelson was using a, a Ping I2 wedge. You know the famous old Ping I2 log yeah, wedge. Which yeah, yeah. Yep. Many, 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 many pros, tour players used. Um, and, and, and Roger said, Phil, you know, why are you using this ping wedge? You know, you're, you're our guy. And um, he said, well, Roger, <laughs> you know, when I lay it open and play, you know, shots that only Phil Mickelson likes to play, is when I hit it a little bit high on the toe, you know, I can feel, I can feel I'm not getting access to the grooves. And this has got this high toe. This ping I2 has got this high toe. Yeah, it does. It did. It did. So, so Roger says, well, what if, what if I can make you one that does that? He says, yeah, for sure. So Roger, <laughs> took two, Roger took two Mac Daddy wedges, took them back to his workshop in LA. So um, Callaway's in Carlsbad, which is near San Diego. So he took them back to LA where he lives, cut, cut one of them in half higher and cut one of them half lower and then welded them together. So ostensibly <laughs> made a really, really high toe and then grounded on his grinder, grounded into the shape that you saw. And he drew, he drew score lines across all of the, all of the face. He says, wow. what, if, what, if we, what if we make a club with this high toe, so the shape that you like, and then put grooves all across the face? And Phil went, yeah, I'll give that a go. And he, he, he basically put the prototype, and, and that's what basically gave birth to the, 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 the um, PM grind that you can see in the Mac Daddy range. And, and it was basically from from that and, and Roger Roger made that. So he he is as I say, you know, the the, the grand the grandfather of wedgeology um started with Cleveland and his own company and then now has been and still does work for Callaway uh, in many respects um, on a global scale. Wow, what a great little story. I, I did not know that. But I I love the personalities in golf and this is what I love about golf. And it, it, it's some of this stuff is, is invention. It's born out of a need for something. And, and obviously it's from, they test a lot of this stuff on tour with the pros and what they want that's unique to them. And like you said, and then they open it to the marketplace if it works. And then there's something there that, that people can have access to. And the fact that someone like Roger Cleveland is still involved, uh, albeit with Callaway now, is, is certainly a good thing to know. I've never... I've, I've always just gone to Cleveland, didn't know that they weren't his company anymore, didn't know that it was sold off to Strixon, didn't know they owned it. But the fact that, you know, you've got now, if people like his gear and his designs, they can go to Callaway and look at some of the stuff that he's been part of the design process of, uh, which is fantastic. And and it was, like I said, I was I was probably a little bit quieter because it was a lesson for me on on wedges and wedgeology, which I'm going to use in future conversations. I love that term. Um, yeah, just really understanding more about it. Like I said, I'm going to be looking at new gear soon. And to know the sorts of questions to ask and to know what I need to look for for my game. And I think that's important for, for the listeners out there for their game to know that there's more choice and there's things that can be catered to suit you better and when you go to a place like a drum and golf, like your drum and golf store in Melbourne, if the listeners are in Melbourne, um, you can you can talk to the staff and and the pros in your local pro shop or wherever you're going to go for a fit out and look at your options and understand what they're used for and understand what questions to ask, most importantly, because you can only get the right answers to the questions that you're asking. Mate, thanks for that uh, insight. Like I said, I, I you know, really, um, really intrigued by the wedges and everything that goes on, mate. I'm going to jump now to a different subject. I want to pick your philosophical mind a little bit on golf, and this is a topic that's probably uh, certainly more prevalent in Sydney at the moment, um, but it has been, uh, I suppose, a factor in other states, in Melbourne and in Brisbane, uh, in not too uh, the distant past in the last couple of years. But I want to talk about public space 
and how golf courses are viewed by the non-golfing public and the thought behind how maybe golf could be incorporated a little bit better uh, or golf courses could be incorporated a little bit better into, I suppose, modern-day society. And by that, I mean uh, there's a there's a current situation in, in Sydney at the moment with Moore Park, which I've talked about, Moore Park Golf Club in the past, uh, where Clover Moore, the, the mayor of Sydney City, it wants to cut Moore Park down to nine holes from 18 and use that space open for the general public as parkland so that they can walk it and, and use the space as dog walkers and picnics and whatever it might be. Um, now, there's a lot of upheaval from golfers in that area that, uh, that are more park players and fans and members, and, and it's a very, very busy golf course, one of the busiest in the country. Uh, there's a bit of pushback and that sort of thing from golf. But I suppose the, the thing that I'm looking for of your opinion, being a, a well-versed golfer, and certainly someone who's been around a lot and spoken to a lot of people. What are your thoughts on something like that situation? I know Albert Park Golf Club in Melbourne's been under pressure in the past for something similar. They've done it in Brisbane, uh, where they recently closed down Victoria Park Golf Club. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Is, is, should golf should golf be chopped up and um, or closed down to allow more parkland space for? for use by the general public or do you think golf can can integrate itself back to maybe some of its former um uh i suppose ways of being where it was a bit more community centered and a bit more community minded is there ways that the public can can access the golf courses as public space a little bit more where they're on public land um as opposed to the to the private ones should that be happening Steve, it's a, it's a it's an emotional topic for all of us golfers to even consider that. Right word, I love that. It is emotional. You're right. And I and I sit here and listen to you talk about it, and I can I can feel it in my heart, sort of well up about you know the thought of you know the, the two great cities in Australia, both cities which which I've lived in and now make Melbourne my home. But you know I'm a Hunter Valley boy, as you know, so I spent a lot of time in Sydney. And a lot of time in around that area that you refer to it in, in Moore Park. And, you know, to have two great cities that have the asset of a golf course in the shadows of the, the main city area is, is just such a wonderful thing. You know, there's not too many world cities that you can go to to, to, to get that sort of amenity as a golfer. And yep. as a golfer, that, you know, that is one of the reasons why we while we play golf to travel and experience golf and to have access to golf, you know, in places where we make our homes. Now, the fact and reality is, is golf is a game which predates a lot of games, a lot of sport, you know, golf started in Scotland well before 1744, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's a historical game. It needs space to play. Now to, to think that, you know, people want to take that amenity away from golfers, regardless of the location, is, is saddening. That's why I get emotional about it. To think that, that people can, who, who aren't interested in golf can just come along and decree that, you know, we don't want that for the exclusive use of you golfers. So we want it for the exclusive use of the non-golfers, the non as well as your golfers, but you're using it a different way. That That's quite challenging sort of for me to get my head around. You know, I'm just sitting here driving I'm at Brighton on the beach road and I can see the city there and looking over the top of Albert Park. And it's just such a great thing to have that golf in the shadows of the city. Now, other sports don't take up as much space, but, you know, there are many other grounds and open areas that are dedicated for the sole use of sports. But therefore, other people do get access to them when those sports aren't being played. So I, I sort of get that. But golf is, golf is golf. And, you know, it's not the type of, you know, game that, you know, lends itself to having people walking around it. But neither, neither does, you know, six rugby league ovals, you know, on a Sunday from 8am in the morning till 4pm in the afternoon when, you know, every grade and every grade of kids are playing and taking exclusive use of that ground and training, you know, seven days a week, that sort of thing. So, you know, maybe that might upset the non-golfers, that sort of mentality. But I, I think golf and golf courses should be very much left as they are and, and applauded for, you know, what golf means to the community and what golf means to, to people 
it's it's not a sport that's going away. No, it isn't. You know, and current current times tell us that golf golf is a safe sport and golf is a desirable sport. The amount of people that have come to golf in this 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 year alone as a COVID uh, year and um, you know realizing that golf is a great way for you know, just get out and get some exercise and do some activity in a sporting sense with your friends, with your family, with people that you care about, people that you don't know, people with a chance to meet and connect with community. People have realised that that is golf is a absolute beautiful conduit for doing that. Um, you know, to, it's a safe sport to play. You know, it's obviously non-contact. You can do it in a way that, you know, you can be safe. That's really important. That's not going away. You know, we're not just going to switch this this year off and, and go back to, you know, normal normal. This is going to be with us for, forever. And and now, you know, the, the little sort of chatter in Melbourne is, you know, I'm just driving not far from Elftonwick where they closed uh, a public course. Closed the public course a couple of years ago. It's still sitting there as overgrown yeah, right. weeds. Yeah, so I had, they, haven't, they haven't turned it into, into any, you know, wonderful public park. It's all actually fenced off. So Elfton Week, which is a lovely little community nine-hole course, they closed it because this council decision, I don't know the whole machinations of why, but it's sitting there as, as weeds. And um, it's really sad to drive past that every day and see that. No. So, mate, I, I, I do not support Clovermore overdeveloping one part of that part of Sydney and then saying, well, we actually, you know, we put 100,000 more people into this area. We need to give them more open space because we've taken all the open space away by putting multi-high-rise developments in this area and taking all the revenue from that. And now we've got to take a golf course because, you know, these people need a, need a park to, to walk the Look. dog in. Now, in that particular area where you are, there, there is no shortage of parks. You know, you've got Centennial Park, which abounds it. You've got the Sydney Football Trust area in the whole SCG area. It's parkland everywhere. There's, there's there. plenty of you're right, but there's there's stacks of parkland in that area, and I think because the and I know that the the grounds of Moore Park come under Centennial Parklands Trust, which I believe is a state-run um, body, and and Clovermore is Moore Park. Uh, sorry, Clovermore is the mayor of Sydney City, which don't run those lands, but she's pushing a case for it to be changed. Um, I see the golf course as the golf component for golfers out of all of Centennial Parklands. Her viewpoint is that golf, that, that, that 18 hole golf course is for golfers and needs to be cut up to add to Centennial Parklands. I think she's got the wrong view of it here. And I, I think to, like you said, the, the population increase with residential high rise and high density is insane. at that, that Southern end of the CBD around more park. So taking the cash on one hand from developers uh, to then plead the case that we need more open space. You've got 200 and something hectares of parkland. Like you said, on top of the SCG Trust, which owns all the sporting fields and the training fields and the, the cricket pitch, cricket fields and, and all that sort of stuff also across the road, uh, it seems like a strange argument. But then you get this emotive wave that you talked about being emotion from – um, both sides, but I'm going to talk about it from the other side because that's where a lot of the pressure is coming from. We see in the papers here in Sydney about what happened at Northcote during down in Melbourne, Northcote Golf Club during the COVID lockdown because you had such an extended lockdown time down there that the public, the golf course was closed because it, you weren't allowed to play golf. So therefore, it was it was closed to use by its by anyone, members and and visitors alike. But locals that boarded that golf course cut a hole in the fence, if I'm not mistaken, and started using that open space as a park for them because previously golf was played on it and they weren't allowed in. No one's there. They've taken it upon themselves to just commandeer it. Yeah, well, that was um, that was a situation that obviously made the news. Now, I can't remember if, if it was closed and it was closed for everyone or they, they actually, the council said, well, it's closed for golfers, but, you know, you can use it as public open space. So you know, you're free to go and walk, walk on it. I don't know what the case was, but what I do know what happened after that, and I think this has caused even more of a ruckus that, you know, the, the local community has now then sort of taken it under, under their own steam to say, well, you know, I've got as much access to this land as you golfers, so, you know, I'm going to use it. And what happens, and I think that's when they cut the hole in the fence. And then the situation a number of weeks ago was 
uh, people were having a picnic on the eighth fairway, and they just popped up stumps on the eighth <laughs> fairway, and people were playing golf. People were playing golf, <laughs> and and the police and the and the police got had to get involved because they and they didn't know what to do, and basically they, they they the police had to then so public resources had to then come and stay there the whole day because the the people wouldn't move. They said, "Well, this is oh we're not God. moving," and people were playing golf. And, the, and you had to miss the eighth hole. The golfers had to walk the eighth no, hole. No, they didn't. Um, yes, they did um, for a family because they chose to have pop up there and have a picnic and, and try and make a statement. Now, uh, you know, make, I don't know if they're making a statement. I don't know. But, you know, they might have just been unawares because of, you know, the previous three months they'd been allowed to, you know, walk on it. And, you know, some people saw golf courses and golf greens and bunkers for the first time. You know, you saw the pictures of, kids plant building sandcastles in bunkers and, and people walking on the greens going, wow, look at this grass. It's beautiful. Now that was great that, that these, all these guys got to see that and, and experience what golf is all about. But um, it's really hard to think that, you know, the golfers of that area, the, that community would, would then need to, to, to give it up. And, you know, it is a rating thing for the, for the councils, but they're under immense pressure and it's, it's political. Stephen, I don't want to be political. I'm not a political person, but it basically, and I'm sure it is in the case of Clovermore, it becomes a political statement. It becomes a vote-gaining statement and, you know, it's as much about appeasing people to, to gain favour with, you know, population Oh, look, I, I don't doubt it. And, and sadly, that is usually at the heart of these things. Uh, whether we like it or not, it, it usually is. I'm a on a I suppose on a personal front. When I was looking after Katoomba Golf Club, well Katoomba Golf Course in the Blue Mountains, uh, we were trying to I suppose grow our um, stature and prominence in the area again as we were rebuilding the golf course and and uh, from a golf perspective. But one of the things I was looking for, and I think I'll break away from that, if if we if we leave it up to people to do as they believe is right on their own it often, more often than not, will turn into a mess. I think it needs to be, I think communication and education around it. um, I'm a big believer in multi-use golf courses. Now that's not for everything. That's not a blanket thing for golf because there's plenty of private golf courses out there that own the land. That's theirs. They can do with it as they choose in. And and I don't think there's an issue with that, but there are, there are plenty of golf courses and we were one at Katoomba that was on public land and it's a leasehold. So the essence of it, it's not owned by the club, uh, but they maintain it. They look after it. They care for it from safety perspectives and all that sort of stuff and the environment and all those things combined. I'm a big fan of the idea where appropriate, and it's usually in in sort of suburbs that are broken away from the city centres or that that are public access on on community land um, or smaller townships where the golf course can again be... Um, integrated back into the community somehow. And, and that can be in very many and very different ways. We were starting to introduce um, like a family fun day where we would have the golf course shut down from golf. And we introduced, you know, we had market stalls and car shows and dodgem cars and some rides and things for kids and families to enjoy. The, and people were walking around all our paths. They were experiencing our, our beautiful scenery and gardens, which we incorporated in the course. And they enjoyed the space that they would normally not be able to do playing golf because they weren't golfers. And we love that integration. It was about having a little bit of community buy-in where they could experience what we were maintaining on a different way. And then other days of the, of the week and in turn the year that they, they, if they wanted to play golf, they could, they could enjoy it at the clubhouse and have a coffee and look at it over the balcony. And then when we opened it up for different events and we were trying to incorporate events throughout the year, that they could walk the fairways again. They could see that space and enjoy. If you wanted to have a picnic, you could, but there were designated times for that. And I think you get this issue where the example you brought up where someone has a picnic in the fairway all day and people can't play golf from a safety perspective and then police are called. I just had a joke with my brother about a similar, the exact same concept. And he said, oh, what's going to happen if people want to use it when they feel like it, I'm going to play around someone having a picnic. I had no idea that that was an example that happened for you guys in Melbourne. It's, it's laughable to, to an extent, but if I throw, you've got Scottish heritage, your parents are from, have come over from, from the British Isles from Scotland, emigrated to Australia. So, and you've experienced a lot of golf travel over there in, in Scotland. They have a similar 
concept of public use, mixed use on their golf courses. And I'll, I'll raise the old course at St. Andrews. Uh, a lot of golfers know that on Sundays it's closed down. The history behind that, I don't know a lot about. I'm not sure if you do either, but they do have it where it's no golf on Sunday and the public are allowed to roam the fairways. And if I go to the MCG, um, I often, I've been there and I've paid for the tour of the MCG because I've, you know, my wife's not a cricket fan, but she loved the walk of the history of the MCG. I think if it's open for that in, in St. Andrew's golf course in Scotland to walk it and you're not a golfer, you can appreciate the history and, and enjoy that space just the same. What are your thoughts on that sort of integration? So, you know, I might have sounded fairly direct before about, you know, leave the golf space alone for the golfers and, and don't take the golf space away. But, you know, the point that you raised is not lost on me. And I absolutely support, you know, like golf is a beautiful, a beautiful game and it's played on beautiful grounds. And, you know, for these guys in Northcote that saw golf courses for the first time, you know, that was intriguing. And I'm all for that concept of people seeing golf in a different light and, and the, the concept of shared and, and mixed use is not lost on me, but I think it can be done in a sustained and an appropriate way. You know, walking, and I can't remember the name of the architect. There's a young up-and-coming architect in the States that was faced with the challenge of developing, redeveloping some land of the golfers, for, and it was like this sort of conversation um, with the community in mind, and there was a lot of community backlash around this topic, and, and he presented a integrated plan that incorporated the community. It incorporated some playing area, some public use area, picnicking area. It incorporated walking tracks and incorporated a golf course. And it was all open for everyone to use. And it was a wonderful design. And I can't remember the name and I'll find it and I'll, I'll work it out and I'll tell you. But that sort of concept is absolutely appropriate. Now, you know, Mornington Golf Course in COVID times let their let their course be used for public walking. And, and now obviously it's not, but that area is, is absolutely appropriate for having a walking track built on it. And whether the guys at Mornington do that or not, I don't know. But your, your, member, your example of Scotland, yes. In Scotland, they have this uh, rule, this law called a right to roam. Anyone has a right to roam on any, any land ostensibly. So you and I could go for a walk in the Highlands and jump onto a farmer's property walk over the fence and many of the fences actually have uh, little crossing um, trundles built into them. So you can walk across it without catching yourself on the electric or the barbed fences or whatever, or stone walls. In many cases, you can walk across it and you can go walking for as far as you can see and they can't do anything about it. No one can come out and say, get off my land. You have the right to roam. And that exists on golf courses as well. And you will see, uh, you'll be playing North Berwick, you know, the St Andrews of East Lothian, the other side of the water, old course in the town, starts in the town, finishes in the town, and a lot of the holes run down by the water. And people are out walking on the edge of the, the dune that separates the golf course from wow. the beach and just having a walk around, just having a walk around with the dogs, saying good day to the golfers, saying good day to all of the American tourists playing golf. And it's wonderful. That's awesome. And they stay out of the way. And and it's it's not a it's not a designated walking track, but yeah, it's sort of become that. And people can, can do this and they can and they know how to do it appropriately. So it's not, well, we're going to set up and have a picnic because we've got a right to roam on the 18th green at um, you know, North Berwick, but they can walk in and around, they can get access to the beach at a part of the beach where they want to get access to, they can walk the dogs and they can do all of that. And it's it just adds another element. And you know, it's like playing golf with dogs is an acceptable, acceptable thing over there. You know, most, a lot of courses allow you to take members to take their dogs and walk, walk the dogs while they play golf. You know, it's not really something that happens here, but that's another thing that happens over there for the majority of places. Um, but, but not every course is, is a public open space that, you know, you can go and have a picnic on. They're still closed, but, you know, these courses, these older courses that run, the Lynx courses that run down the water certainly have this dual occupancy type thing where there's walking tracks and shared use and, and it just seems to work. No one sort of, you know, gets hit by a golf ball and sues anyone. That's the other, the other aspect in this litigious society that we've got. You know, they've got to manage that and everyone's scared of that. But it just seems to work over there, mate. And, you know, there's signs everywhere saying, you know, golfers have right of way. Beware of the golfer. If you get hit by a golf ball, you know, I don't know what the signs say, but yeah. you know what I mean. Um, 
that does work. And your old course point, I, I, I don't know the history myself either. I have a funny feeling that the origins of it relate back to, you know, sort of religious reasons, uh, you know, Sunday being the Sabbath and yep. all that sort of thing. I think that might be the, the origins. I could be wrong and I should know it and I don't. But really now the old course, which a lot of people don't fully appreciate and understand, is it's essentially run by, I use that word a lot, don't I? Um, <laughs> It's run by the council and St Andrews Links Trust, which is a, a, a government council body, um, have several courses in St Andrews area. If you live in St Andrews, you can get access to a, a links ticket. You know, it costs you 60 quid a year or 100 quid a year. or It's ridiculously cheap. You then get access to all of the, uh, the links trust courses, um, which includes the old course. So, you know, you, you, you can go and play on it as a local and um, but on Sundays they close it off, and I was there in September last year, and I took uh, my wife up there, who um, didn't really fully appreciate being on the old course and walk, being able to walk up the 18th fairway and park near the 17th green, all that sort of thing. Um, but you know, for me, it was it was busy as you know, there were people everywhere, just walking, playing, kicking a football. They're actually running tours, you know, there were guided tours around the old course, and people taking taking people around, showing where Tiger hit a shot from and where he sunk a putt from and, you know, when he had 20-odd under and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it was just a hive of activity. And it seems to work. It seems to work. You know, like the place is full of golfers all year and golfers come from all around and it's closed one day a week. It's crazy <laughs> to think, but it's closed one day a week and it works. It works Unbelievable. really well. And, and I think from an Australian perspective, that one day a week that it's closed being Sunday is probably one of our busiest golf days of the week. It's um, for yeah. visitors and guests and of, uh, of clubs to go out for recreation and, and for their um, their hobby and, and play golf on a Sunday. Whereas, yeah, in, in St Andrews, it doesn't happen. And everyone's okay with it. I think there is that historical part behind it. And it, it's probably just because it's been that way for so long that it just is that way. And that's how people are so used to it. I think if you brought it in a rule like that here, say at Moore Park, for example, where you could play Sundays, I think people would go bananas. The golfers would. They'd say, oh, I can't play on one of the days of the weekend that I have off. I, I don't know, but um, I find it interesting. It's always hard to bring in new rules like this, for example, to, to, to change we're, we're creatures of habit, so to change a habit, a habitual thing, um, is often brought with you know a big wall in front that people go, that's too hard to get over. Um, it doesn't matter which side of the argument you're on. I, I think there's, I still think there's merit to it. Like you say, it's not lost on you, and I don't think it's lost on golfers. But I think, I think we need to be. I think both sides of the argument in certain examples. Um, where it could be beneficial to to the entity at, at the heart of the, the discussion, uh, I think can can need to be more open minded about how to go about it, so people can use that space if you're not a golfer in, in a way. And it's education, it's understanding that you know the bunkers aren't, you know, I suppose kids are going to build sandcastles. That's what kids do, but it's not a place to go and take a dirt bike. I've had that in the past at my golf course at Wentworth Falls. We used to have people go on the golf course with dirt bikes and use it as a, as a motocross track. Well, aren't golf courses the best natural motocross tracks <laughs> ever built? Absolutely. I suppose you can't um, argue with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, every, every motor, you know, I used to be in that industry as well. Every motocrosser that I know always used to dream about, you know, whooping up a berm on a, on a bunker uh, and, and doubling, doubling over a big tabletop, you know, green. So, um, but, I guess if, if you survey the golfers, I, I don't know, Steve, if you said to the guys who, you know, make a living and play their golf at Moore Park, if you said, hey, guys, you know, we've got to entertain a concept of integrating our 18 holes and changing to integrate for the community and whether that's building some walking tracks or losing some part of something, you know, for some public open space, but maintaining, you know, the, you know, the nub of the concept of the 18 holes, or lose lose nine holes, you know. I reckon they'd probably entertain, you know. And there was no other choice. I reckon they'd probably entertain the integration of some of that sort of public amenity. Uh, I would I would think I, I don't know, but I would think, and I, I reckon that wouldn't be that'd be a reasonable outcome in the face of losing it or or um, you know, or doing something different to maintain your 18 holes. You know, like we've talked before about 
nine-hole golf and par three golf and, you know, that sort of thing. So, you know, it might not be perfect, but at some point, you know, there's, there's probably these discussions are going to not go away. No, that's true. They're not going away. And, um, you know, the parties are going to have to, uh, going to have to agree to, to move on, you know, and, and for the golfers, if they don't like that, well then, you know, there are plenty of, I'm sure, I'm sure there are plenty of golf opportunities that they can seek around. But, you know, I think for me, if golf stays in the shadow of that, that big city and stays at a, at a full capacity to allow the people to enjoy golf as an 18 hole game, it is an 18 hole game, two nine hole games, you know, whatever. As a facility that allows the volume of golfers to play golf and and cater for the volume and not restrict the volume, that's my yeah. point. Um, that that's that's what that's what my point is. That's what I think needs to be maintained. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I do uh, I do agree with you on that part. If the if the volume is there, then clearly it's it's a difficult argument, surely, to suggest that um, we need to do away with part of the golf course when. It's, it's it's commonly known that Moore Park is one of the busiest golf courses in the country. So um, I think there are other examples that it could be done in integrating with the general public, but I don't know that that's the right one, being next to Centennial Parklands as it is and the SCG Trust Parks and uh, Sporting Field. So, but, mate, look, as always, I, I love talking philosophically about the game with you and, and some of the things that are current in the wave of golf. Mate, thank you very much for, for joining me again on the podcast for – different discussions and and if you like we started off with saying if you if you're interested in some of ross's other podcast work but my love of golf um mental mastery or golf rules questions uh please go and listen to them uh search your favorite podcast app for them um i'll have up some links as well you can click onto uh on some of my postings and also of course information about wedgeology uh with with uh through ross and and the drum and golf store and in Melbourne. So in, uh, feel free to go and have a look at the shop. It's a wonderful store. Like I said, I've been there. I think it's one of the best going around and, um, all the staff and Ross are all too happy to help you with wedgeology, whichever way you might be looking to, um, to improve your game. So thank you, Roscoe. Really appreciate your time again on the podcast and look forward to it next time. Stevie, keep up the good work, mate. Well done. You're having a crack and, uh, and we love that. Um, you know, that's what we're all trying to do to yeah, bring this information to people and uh, our thoughts and you know it's uh, really powerful stuff that you can do and uh, you're doing a good job wonderful thanks mate